Welcome to Pod Aloha, dedicated to preserving the heritage of surfing and the spirit of aloha. I'm Paul Strau, and I'm going to take you inside the stories of surfing's biggest influencers. Today, our guest is Randy Rarick. Aloha, Paul. Aloha, Kiernan. Before we get started, a little bit of uh, quick business. I got to ask you, uh, what were those cool shorts you were wearing at Santa today? Oh, they're, they're really, really cool, too. Uh, they fit so well. They're my new Birdwell Limited Edition 311s, and they're royal blue with the royal Hawaiian colors on the, on the striping on both sides, uh, gold and, and red. But they fit so well, and they even have a custom feature on the back, which is um, a redwood button, which symbolizes a, an early board that belonged to my dad that I had a, the pleasure of riding a couple times. I guess our dog, Makaha, loves the shorts, too. Yeah, that's that a, a shout-out, right, in favor of the shorts. <laughs> that's Thank right. you, Makaha. Makaha, the dog, says, I like my Birdwell 311 Paul Strauss shorts. And, and I love my favorite feature is probably the seal with you doing the Strau 5. It was so cool when we were with uh, Sean Thompson the other day, right? And he... He was saying, I can't stand when people call it a Cheater 5. It's a Strau 5. It's a Strau 5. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Sean. Respect. Yeah, that's a, that's another great tribute that we put on the shorts, too. You know, yeah. it's a, uh, a very nice statement. And I, in addition to the the, um, the Cheater 5, uh, I love the little label in the center. It says Malama Kekai, which is Cherish the Sea, which is very close and dear to my heart. Yeah, it was... They're, they're beautiful shorts and uh, a really personal story when you know all those details behind it. So uh, a big shout out to Birdwell. They did a fantastic job. We're huge fans there. They just make great products. The Indeed. only thing that's crazy is I keep buying more shorts of theirs. And um, <laughs> you don't really only need one pair for probably like 50 years, right? That's true. They never wear out. They just <laughs> hold together so well. They're incredible. I've I've taken to when I'm wearing my favorite pair now. Just almost every time I go, I'm just trying to trying to break them, trying to damage them. Can't do it. No, if I mean seriously, if you want, you know, the best for your money, you know, it's not necessarily the the custom features, but it's the lasting quality that you'll never be disappointed by. I agree. Well, listen, if anybody out there wants to get a pair of uh, the Paul Strau limited edition 311s. Visit podaloha.com slash store, and you'll be able to find out how you can get your own pair of these beautiful, beautiful shorts. All right, on with the show. We have a very special guest today. Yes, we do. Uh, it's Randy Rarick. Thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure, and aloha to you guys. Randy, you've pretty much done it all in surfing. You started patching boards and went on to shape close to 10,000. You've surfed competitively. You helped create the pro circuit and are the godfather of the Triple Crown. You're credited with being one of the pioneers of serious surf travel, having traveled to more than 60 countries, and you founded the Hawaiian Islands Vintage Surf Auction, which was the world's largest surfboard and memorabilia collection. So like Paul, you started surfing at Waikiki and the Beach Boys got you started there. One, one guy in particular. Tell us about those early experiences, your first paddle outs. Up until I was say 10 years old I did things that the usual kids do played baseball and cruised around and everything and I finally at 10 years old my mom thought I was old enough to 
take up surfing. So she enlisted the help of the famous Waikiki Beach Boy, Rabbit K. Kai. And what's really interesting is Rabbit, when I was 10 years old, when I began to surf, Rabbit was pushing 40. He was 39 years old. And so he took me out like most beginners and put me on a big board and took me around out in front of the old Royal Hawaiian Hotel in Moana and turned me around and shoved me on a wave and told me to stand up. And it's really amazing that here it is 60 years later that I remember that really well. And what was so fascinating for me was Rabbit gave me the confidence and that's the whole point of being a good beach boy is get somebody out there so they're not afraid gets you stoked and then pushes you into a wave and gets you to stand up and I remember that first wave at 10 years old going straight off and I probably rode 30 or 40 yards and thinking to myself how fascinating it was that I was moving through the water with no propeller or no motor and this energy in the ocean was moving me and it was just fascinating I and mean, I remember I got to the end of the ride where you kind of fade out and stop and then you fall down back onto your board and I sat down on my board and I turned around and looked back where I'd been and I was just enthralled and I thought this is very cool and at 10 years old I knew that I wanted to be a surfer you know that's how everybody gets bitten seriously by the surf bug you yeah. know Randy uh, it's incredible and, and we uh my mom was a florist in Waikiki and she worked at one of the hotels but we lived up in the hills kind of above behind Diamond Head at that stage so it was kind of hard to get to the beach because we lived up on top of what was called Monlani Heights then and um, so I could only get a ride once in a while with friends on the weekend and what have you and I started surfing but I wasn't 100% into it till I was about 12 years old and I was getting better at it and I was a Boy Scout and I had perfect attendance at Boy Scouts and we had our meetings every Friday night and I was surfing Waikiki the weekend before and on the pole was a poster for a surf movie and I remember it was Walt Phillips Psych Out and it, you go around and people would tape the, the posters up on the poles and that's how you got the word out back in those days about a surf movie coming and it was one night only and it was a Friday night, the night of my Boy Scout meeting. So for a whole week, I agonized. Oh my gosh, I've never missed. I've had perfect attendance for two years at Boy Scouts. I've never missed my Boy Scout meeting. And here's this surf movie coming in. It's one night only. And I agonized all week long, and I made the decision finally to go to the surf movie. And that was the end of my Boy Scout career. <laughs> and after that, I realized I was a surfer full on. So yes. that was my beginning. Rabbit K. Kai taught me how to surf in Waikiki, the classic beginnings, as Paul said, that we all have been through. Got the you know the perfect wave at canoes where you go straight off and uh, bit the bug there and then gradually got better. And when you grow up in Waikiki, you surf canoes first, baby queens if you're young, and then you get old enough, you've graduated out to regular queens because that's a little bit harder to ride than canoes. And then I remember probably when I was 12 or 13, I graduated out to Pops, which is the outer break, which you got to paddle about 200 yards to get out to it. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've made the big time now. <laughs> so that's kind of, you, you kind of go in phases. Is Back then, for sure, you had to learn how to go in stages to learn how to surf. You, you obviously learned, you stood up, 
then you gradually worked your way from one break to a little bit harder one to a harder one, and, and you and you kind of climbed the ladder as you got better at it. And actually, it's one thing that doesn't happen to the, in this day and age as much. And I think guys jump right in too far over their heads. So I think we learned how to surf properly back in the old days. But you know, it's interesting. And you started at Waikiki, and so what? How did that a bug that you uh, got? How did that? When? Where did that lead you? I mean, obviously. You know, there's seasons of surf, and you know, summertime is Waikiki, more than more than the other months. And during the winter and the spring, it's all on the North Shores and the West Shores. Well, so. back then we, we didn't have the means to get around. I wasn't driving yet or anything, so it's pretty much relegated to town. And you you took whatever came along. In those winter months, when it's flat to a foot, you had to deal with it. So, sure. and as I said, my mom worked in in Waikiki, so I ended up surfing Waikiki quite a bit when I was young. And uh, since she worked over what is now the Hilton Hawaiian Village, I actually surfed out in front at Kaiser's and or number threes was sort of my favorite spot. I actually surfed threes probably more than anywhere because it was real close by where my mom worked and I could mm -hmm. paddle out. And I didn't even have a board at that stage. I would just borrow boards off the, uh, the Beach Boys and paddle out and get a couple waves and in between rentals and wasn't until I saved up enough money. I think I bought my first board when I was um, probably 12 and a half, maybe 13. And I'd saved up, I don't know, I think I had a paper route back in those days. And I bought this balsa board and I paid $15 for it. And it was uh, this heavy waterlogged thing that I would take out. And when I come home at night, I'd stand it up and all the water would drain out and wake up the next morning and there'd be a pool of water at the bottom of the board. I was like, going, oh man, this thing sucks. I couldn't wait to get a foam board. I really wanted a foam, because foam had come in by that stage mm -hmm. and more and more guys were getting foam boards, but I was relegated to this beat up old balsa thing to start off with. Oh, that's great. But you actually went into uh, surfing you know, in a, in a different way because you became recognized as an incredible Shaper, but before that, you used to do patching and ding repairs and all kinds of things, which is really interesting because it tells me that you're really an entrepreneur, willing to work to make money and be independent. And well, I'd what, love what, to hear what, your comments about that. One of the things was in Hawaii, a lot of people there's sort of a social hierarchy, and back then, most of the Haoles sent their kids to Punahou or Iolani, perhaps private schools because. They generally were the commerce leaders in, in the social society. My parents were kind of lower middle class and both of them worked really hard all the time. So I hardly ever saw my parents and we didn't have very much money. And so subsequently I had to learn how to make it on my own. And when I was, like I said, I learned to surf at 10. When I was 11, I walked into a surf shop and just thought how cool it was to see all these surfboards being made. And this was actually a surfboard factory that was in downtown Honolulu. And I went, wow, I really would like to learn how to make surfboards. And so at a pretty young age, at 11 years old, I started working on fixing dings and what have you. And in the neighborhood I grew up in, we had all these surfers and nobody knew how to fix dings. And I decided, well, I was going to take it upon myself to fix everybody's dings for free. And that was a deal. So. Guys would get, everybody got dinged in those days because they were big heavy tankers and you, you scraped your fin on the reef or else you purled and everybody had nose dings because everybody <laughs> purled all the time because so the boards are so straight and heavy. 
And so I was always fixing dings and I started at about 11 years old and got so inspired that I really made my first surfboard at 11 years old. And uh, back then there was no YouTube videos, there was no way to learn to do this. And so I would scour through these surf magazines and there'd be little pictures of guys repairing a board or glassing a board and I'd just study those pictures and try to figure out how to do it. And then I got into it and, I, and we had a couple surf shops there, Inner Island Surf Shop and Surfboards Hawaii. And I would go there and watch the guys working from out the back door or through the window or whatever and uh, slowly got myself into because of my enthusiasm. And my first kind of job was sweeping the floor at the old Hobie shop. Dick Metz had opened a shop in Honolulu on Kapiloni Boulevard. And, and they had a little tiny repair shop out the back where this guy was fixing boards. And I would go and watch him. And then he sort of got tired of me watching him and bugging him. And I started asking him questions. And he started having me do all the grunt work. And first it was sweeping the floor and cleaning up. And then, OK, well, you can do this, sand this. You know, then he showed me how to mix resin and this and that. And I gradually worked my way up into learning how to fix boards. And then I started working um, pretty much every weekend at my house fixing boards and, and learning to make boards. And so by the time I was 12 years old, I was pretty good at it already. Mm -hmm. And then by the time I was 14, I actually got hired. And 14 years old, I went to work after school and on the weekends. And that was. Hobie Shop and Surfline Hawaii were the two major dealers. The only other one was Greg Knoll. And um, it was pretty amazing because there was so much work that there was never a shortage. And it was nobody wants to fix dings. Everybody wants to become a surfboard maker or a surfboard shaper, but nobody wants to be a ding repair guy. So I learned early on that you could make really good money. and. Once I started working after school and on weekends, I was pulling in about $250 a week, which back That's then was big money. That would yeah. be like pulling in $2,500 a week now. Yeah. And I was saving it and, and saving my money, and, and it was great. And, and it, Plus, I got really good at it, and I got better and better. And finally, I graduated to where I... We had these t-shirts and these guys put my name on, they called me Super Patch <laughs> because I could patch anything. And uh, I probably fixed over 10,000 surfboards easily, worked on at least that many. My God. And in the doing so, I also learned how to deal with um, different manufacturers and shapers. And it was a great education because at Surfline, we had guys like Brewer, Tom Morey, um, Rich Harbor, different guys would come in because we we're a dealer for all these different brands and they would come over to Hawaii and shape a few boards and I got to watch them all. Mm -hmm. And then I started working night shift up at the Greg Knoll shop and I got to watch Charlie Galeno and Chris Green and then George Downing sort of took me under his wing and taught me how to basically shape there. So it was a, a real good learning experience at a really young age. So. It's really an art form too to not only patch dings but also the whole surfboard manufacturing process well that was what was good about it I, I did learn how to do everything mm -hmm. so it was not just the shaping part of it. it was how to glass how to sand how to put a fin on how to f repair boards and back then every manufacturer had their little nuances of what made their boards different from everybody else's so in doing so I got an incredible history of the surfboard design like I said working on 10,000 surfboards I could from 20 yards away, I could look at a board upside down and just look at the fin and the stringer, and I could tell you nine times out of ten what kind of surfboard it yeah, was. Yeah, my God. Yeah, so I got a really good history uh, on the surfboard evolution, especially during the early mid-60s.
but you became a really <clears throat> serious world traveler, you know, and I don't think anybody's matched all the countries that you've gone to, truly. I mean, and this was way a long time ago too. Would you mind sharing what motivated you to take up to the road, take to the road and and well, experience all of these new? Well, what was interesting was growing up in Hawaii was way different from being from the mainland. And in Hawaii in the early 60s, like our news about surfing was through the surf magazines and the right. occasional surf movie that came into town. And I would see these pictures like of California with glassy waves and sandy bottoms. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be so cool to go surf someplace where when you fell off your board, you could step in the sand instead <laughs> of hitting the reef? And wouldn't it be cool to be a beach break so you didn't have to paddle all the way out to the reef? And so I didn't even come to California until I was 15 years old for the first trip. And I was totally blown away when I went to California. I was like, I traveled from like Malibu down to Mexico with a friend of mine and surfed all these famous breaks. And, and I was just like amazed. And then I had an opportunity because of my work at Surfline to get involved. I was got on the Dewey Weber surf team. And I remember going to the Weber factory they had in, in Santa Monica back in those days. and walking into the glassing room and there was 60, 60 racks of boards. I could not believe it. Here we're in Hawaii, we've got four racks and here there's 60 and I was just like, oh my God. So the idea of traveling was just amazing to me coming from Hawaii and I thought, well, I live in Hawaii, we got the best waves in the world, but I wanna see what everywhere else looks like. And so when I graduated from high school, I decided to go to Australia to see what was happening down there. So I, I had saved all this money from working, repairing boards, so I bought a, ticket and got on a ship and I sailed to Australia, took two boards with me. I took a 9.6 and an 8.10 and from the time I left Hawaii, by the time I got to Australia, those boards were obsolete. In, <laughs> in the two weeks it took to sail from Hawaii, it stopped in Fiji and Samoa and New Zealand and then finally got to Australia and I got off the boat. The guys laughed at my boards when I got off in Sydney. They said, hey mate, those things are you know way too long because boards were going short at that stage. So the whole shortboard revolution happened while I was... Um, in, in route, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, it, 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 have, it started in 67 with, with McTavish, and, it, and that was the other thing. I got to know Bob McTavish and Nat Young, and so I thought, well, the Australians are leading the charge on this. I want to go see what's happening. So I went to Australia, and I ended up spending a whole year there, and I went to school there, I went to college, and uh, ostensibly to learn, but really it was to keep me out of the Vietnam draft, so <laughs> I, uh, I was able to get a, a school deferment, spent a whole year traveling from one end of Australia to the other. And in the meantime, I met George Greeno and I met, hung out with McTavish and surfed with Nat and Keith Paul and Ted Spencer and all the really good Australians. And I saw this whole surfboard change happening while I was there. It went from, like I said, nine foot boards. By the time I left Australia, they were down at seven foot boards already. Amazing. And in that one year, they dropped almost two foot of length. And, uh, and I was right there with the architects of the change, so it was great. And I got to travel up and down. So that really set the bug for traveling. Mm -hmm. And uh, I decided I wanted to see what the rest of the surfing world was like. And so I kind of made it a point. I said, you know, the next few years, I'm going to launch myself off and do traveling and always come back to Hawaii, though. And figured the best time to travel would be during our summer because the winter was better for surf on the North Shore. And by that time, we were all riding the short boards on the North Shore. Mm -hmm. And I set off and uh, I spent um, two years on the road from 72 to 74 just traveling the world. And I went to 
about 60 different countries in that time period and surfed in all of them. And a lot of places had never been surfed before. And so I surfed the coast of Africa. I went to South America. I surfed in Brazil before anybody else had really surfed there yet. Um, I traveled through, went to Australia, I went through Europe, and spent two years just wandering the world looking for waves. That's amazing, though, because to do it alone, I mean, it's kind of a lonely path, right? It was exciting because I took my planer with me. So everywhere I went, I shaped boards, and I made some really obscure boards in some obscure places, but it, made, it got me enough money to get to the next place. And so I'd make enough money to move on to the next one, and I'd surf and hang out and meet all the locals there. And in doing so, I saw all these different cultures which were fascinating because everywhere I went surfing was the common denominator and it didn't matter that I didn't speak the language or it didn't matter if I was a Hawley kid in, in some whether it would be black or Asian or, or uh, Latino whatever type of country it would be surfing allowed me to be accepted and it was the one thing I realized that there was no prejudice in the surfing and as you know growing up in Hawaii there's underlining prejudice that's there yes. I mean there's no question I mean Hawaii probably handles it better than anywhere else but other places the bigotry and, and the, the racism that you see in a lot of places but in surfing it, it never emerged because once you were in the water you were the same as everybody else which I found really interesting and so it was really a good calling card to see the world what really you know I mean, Hawaii to me is idyllic in terms of what it offers, but what captivated your attention when you're on your travels that made you think, oh gosh, this is as close to Hawaii as it can get? You know, there was nothing that was close to Hawaii. <laughs> I tell you, it's hard to beat Hawaii. I think we have the best waves, the best environment, the best lifestyle in the world. Um, there's great waves like Jeffrey's Bay. I got Jeffrey's Bay perfect six to eight, ten foot with nobody out. I've surfed uh, places that no one had ever surfed before, really good waves. Uh, Southwest Africa, Namibia, up through Angola, up to Ghana, that whole stretch, no one was surfing in those days. And we just got a Land Rover and drove along and hoped for the best. And sometimes we scored, sometimes it was lonely, sometimes it was really grungy and, and horrible and I've had broken down in the middle of the desert and I could tell you tales of woe that would bring tears to your eyes but it's part of the experience. Yeah, of course. One time I um, I had a Volkswagen van is doing the typical European travel around Volkswagen and spent a couple months and I was in, in the west coast of Spain um, near Malaga and I went to sleep and I woke up in the morning and I heard this kind of and I'm thinking, oh, I must be dreaming, it sounds like surf. And I was sleeping in the back of my van and I sit up and I pull the curtains and there's perfect little two to three foot waves breaking and I go, oh my gosh, some kind of storm in the Mediterranean. And so I had my board with me, so I went out. Here, this Malaga is pretty well known and as a tourist destination, I was the only surfer in the whole place. Went out and surfed two to three foot surf and drew a whole crowd of people coming down just amazed to see a surfer because we're talking early 70s here there wasn't surfing wasn't that well known yet and that was a really experience to come in and be kind of like the hero of the surf guy okay. and then same thing one time i was in uh i was traveling from greece up through to what is now croatia but you had to go through albania back then which was communist 
and I drove across the border and you're not supposed to get into Albania without permission but I did it I got there at six o'clock in the evening and the guards went off duty and I drove through the border and, and was halfway through the country before I got pulled over there and saying well, how the heck do you get here but that was um, when it was called Yugoslavia back in those days right above Albania and I got a big storm in the Adriatic Sea and same thing I woke up and there was like three four foot surf and had my board and I got to surf the Adriatic Sea on a storm swell and got really good waves and people would come down and they would just be enthralled nowadays not so much because everybody's seen surfing around the world but back then surfing wasn't big yet and nobody had seen it in a lot of these places and then Africa I spent a whole year traveling through Africa I bought a Land Rover and I started on um, southern Africa and worked my way up the whole west coast of Africa and did the entire coastline up through like I said Angola through Ghana through Nigeria through um, Sierra Leone all these places and got incredible waves along the way and no surfers I mean zero back then there was nobody I mean places where we pull up in the village and all the kids would come in. That was one thing I always found that the kids were enthralled with seeing you surf. The parents would get bored after about three or four waves. So they'd, they'd come out and watch you. They'd be curious to see what you were doing. And But after you rode a couple of waves, they go, eh, no big deal. But the kids always loved it. And we, uh, I'd always put a couple of kids on my board and shove them into waves and, and they would just, just love it. The smiles on their face was... So two years of, um, like I said, wandering just looking for waves, just trying to see what it was like. And and I came back to Hawaii two years later, and I remember I, I from from Africa, I crossed over to South America, and I surfed in Brazil and Venezuela, um, up through the Caribbean islands, and I entered back into the United States, into Florida, coming into Florida, and the guy looked at my passport, he goes, he says, you've been out of the country for two years, and he goes, where have you been? And I said, well, you name it, I've probably been there. and. Uh, I had a, a great stories of surfing. And so, but it was funny, I came back to Hawaii. I actually shaped boards in Florida to get enough money to get home to Hawaii. <laughs> I was working with Donnie Mulhern at MTB Surfboards for about a month or so. I made enough to buy a ticket home. And I got home in like May, and then I decided, oh, I wanted to go back to South Africa. So I organized my first of what was to become eight surf tours back to South Africa, where I took guys from Hawaii and got a free ticket out of it. And, and show uh, chaperone guys back for the uh, tournaments there. There was a Gunston 500 and another mm -hmm. event that was kind of growing in the mid-70s. And that was what really sparked me into going into my next phase of my life was to, to get really involved in professional surfing. Right. Gosh, so that motivated you to look seriously at a, creating a format that would uh, celebrate surfing competitively? Yeah, because during my high school days, I was competing. Back then, Makaha was the big tournament in Hawaii. It was kind of the de facto world championship, and I surfed in the junior division of that and did pretty good in it. We had the local Hawaii Surfing Association, and right. I was in the top 10 of that. I, I won the actual Hawaii State Surfing Championships at El Moana. And yeah. So I was a decent competitor, and this was before pro surfing. This is when it was all amateur surfing. And I would have made the uh, 68 team to go to Puerto Rico, but I left for Australia for a whole year. I went traveling for a year in Australia, so I missed the team uh, qualifying. Otherwise, I would have easily made that team and probably mm -hmm. gone to Puerto Rico. But um, I came back from Australia and had really seen what the Australians were doing design-wise. That was right during the whole shortboard revolution. 
and I came back as the shortboard really set in and actually opened my own surf shop back in the late 60s and, and still was competing and was doing good enough that I got picked to be on the world team for the 1970 World Contest. Yeah. So right. I was definitely competing all through the 60s and, and into the early 70s for sure. And I, it worked out great because like I said, I made the world team. I got all the way through to the semifinals. I was like the third best Hawaiian guy on the whole team and just missed mess, making the finals. I would have changed my life if I made the finals <laughs> of the 70 World Contest, but I just missed it, made it to the semis, and so my competitive career was kind of at a high at that period, the late 60s, no early kidding. 70s. But uh, I, I had gotten this travel bug, and I really wanted, I loved South Africa, I loved Africa, and so I was, I would organize this group, and we'd take guys, and it was neat, like our first group, we took BK, we took Al Chapman, we took Dennis Pang, uh, quite a few good surfers down there and they all would compete and, and some of them did pretty good. That was kind of when Sean Thompson was doing his run of, right. he won six uh, of the local titles there, what they called the, the old Gunston 500. And South Africa was a real, becoming a real powerhouse. That was Michael Thompson, his cousin was good. The Parman brothers, Jonathan mm -hmm. Parman and Donald Parman were really good. So the South Africans were emerging as, as a force in, in competitive surfing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, if we could get the South Africans involved. And I had stopped in Brazil on my way home to travels too. And the Brazilians were interested in getting going. And I thought, well, if we could get the South Africans going with the Brazilians and, and then the U.S. mainland guys. And then, of course, we had Hawaii. And, of course, the Australians were real strong. I thought there was a, a way we could really develop something into professional surfing. So you're, it was really your travels gave you this global perspective and the vision to try to unite all of those communities? For sure, because I was already competing myself, and uh, it was uh, a case of how could we get those guys involved, and if I hadn't traveled, I wouldn't have known. So really the travels were, were the catalyst for me to take my competitive history that I knew from competing already and combine the competing with the travels and then marry the two together to make it more of a global, because at that stage it was pretty much the Australians and the Hawaiians. And then to some extent the Californians were, were the powerhouse players and the rest of the world was all second rate. The Japan, the Brazils, you know, nobody, I mean, South Africa was emerging because of Sean Thompson predominantly and, but I could see the, the that surfing was growing everywhere and the interest was growing everywhere and everywhere I went people were interested and so how what a better way to do it than use competitive surfing to promote surfing worldwide so that was my motivation there and my travels had kind of kick-started that thinking in that realm and the other thing is at that stage I was my mid-twenties and I realized back then when you were 25 you were considered old as a competitive surfer I mean there wasn't guys like into their 40s at all in those days and so 25, I was getting on in my age, and uh, it was time to, uh, you know, seriously think of switching from being a competitor to an administrator. And, and that I slowly, in about a two-year period, I, I realized, yeah, I could still put a jersey on, and yeah, I could probably still go out and win a few heats, but my true calling and probably my value to surfing was more as putting something back into it than rather than trying to get something out of it. And so that's why I really began to make a decision to devote myself to organizing and administration. And I first approached George Downing and asked George, we should try to organize um, some kind of uh, a circuit, some way to recognize the budding talent that's coming out of all these countries. George had run the 72 World Contest, and, but by 74, 75, 
he was not as motivated to really take up the mantle to run with professional surfing. And so then I turned to Fred Hemios, who was producing two of the three events in Hawaii. He was doing the Pipeline Masters and he had the Smirnoff Pro. And Fred said, sure, if you want to organize some sort of a elimination rounds to qualify guys to get in, I'll accept the results of that. So myself and Bernie Baker teamed up with uh, Jack Shipley, who was the head judge of the Hawaii events. And we created a thing called the Pro Class Trials, which was kind of the predecessors to the qualifying series of events that we have today. And all the non-invited guys that weren't already in the contest would go out and six guys would qualify and then they would get in the main event. And it proved wildly successful. In fact, BK won the first two of, of the events we put on. And, uh, and it proved a way for guys that had no rankings and weren't qualified by any other means to get an opportunity. And that was the beginning of the qualifying circuit. And it worked really good. And from that point on, we uh, started putting guys in the events and then we decided since I knew everybody from all around the world to link everybody together into this world tour and on the in my kitchen table at my house at Sunset Beach I sat down with a napkin and I looked back over the results of from early 76 till right before the Hawaiian season and kind of back counted all the the results and nobody knew we were doing this and I went to Fred I said okay I got this rating system we can take these events let's, if they say they want to be part of the circuit and I think we got 10 or 12 events from around the world and they all said great everybody wanted something like this to happen and nobody had done anything yet so they said sure we'll take it and we started what was called International Professional Surfing and that was the first pro tour and it was right at the start of the Hawaiian events so we let everybody know okay we've got these eight events we've already counted them you didn't know you were in them but they're, they're counting and the results from those added to the Hawaiian events will determine who the first world champion is. And we did the three events in Hawaii and Peter Town and never won an event, but he came second and I think two and fourth and the third one or something like that. And he had enough points that he edged out Ian Cairns and he became the first world champion. So that was the beginning of the World Pro Tour in 1976. Amazing story, yeah. That's incredible. So did you did you encounter friction along the way? Were people thinking this is a great idea or were there people Everybody wanted something to happen. I mean, everybody realized pro surfing was growing. There was no question because we had the Hawaiian events. Australia was had turned pro in 73 with putting money into their events. The South Africans were a major push. Um, there was a couple events on the east coast of the U.S. at that stage. Probably the most lagging place was California because California was coming out of this anti-contest mode with black wetsuits and it was very uncool to be a competitive surfer in, in the early mid-70s. So California was probably dragging, lagging behind than everybody else. But everybody else, and particularly the Australians, they wanted to be pro surfers. People could see the writing on the wall, their money was coming into the sport. And I could see it was happening and I knew it was gonna grow. And I said, well, we might as well try to control that growth and make it the best we can possibly do it and so let's go for it and so pretty much every contest director was keen on it and that first year nobody knew what to expect we just winged it as we put it together and it, it really wasn't until the next year in 77 when everybody knew okay here's the circuit here's contest 1 through 12 starting in I think it was New Zealand then it went to Australia then it went to South Africa and stopped in the East Coast and then here in California had one those days and then uh, finished up in Hawaii at the end of the year. So everybody knew, okay, this is what we gotta do. So the circuit got going and 
uh, it was a real growth year. That's when the Stubbies, Peter Druin had introduced man on man surfing at the Stubbies event, mm -hmm. which was a real success. And the Japanese got really into it. I think we had three events in Japan that year and it really took off. And all of a sudden this lifestyle became a sport and that, that changed everything. Once the money came into it and once it was organized, it went from just this random events here and there, lifestyle type of surfing to a, a legitimate sport. International sport too. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that was a milestone achievement. With, with what's gonna be coming up with the Olympic surfing and everything, Randy, do you have any foresight into what where this will continue to grow? Well, as I said, way back in the 70s, Fred Hemison and myself, we saw, we had the vision that pro surfing was gonna grow. I knew it was gonna become a sport. I knew that the lifestyle was gonna give away to commercialization of it. It was coming, it was, it was just a matter of time and how it was developed. So our goal was to try to, as I said earlier, guide it and give it some direction. And um, I remember Peter Townsend saying, one day we'll be millionaires, Randy. I mean, it was a little premature and I, th I think it didn't, happened till uh, Tom Carroll probably finally signed a million dollar contract 10 years later but the writing was on the wall that pro surfing was was going to legitimize the sport and that's what it did it, it legitimized it as a sport and so as to where it was going to go at those days we had no idea and the other thing you got to realize that was the same time that the surf industry took off before that there was hardly any quote surf industry but a lot of the surfers had gotten older and invested their time, effort, energy into building the business of surfing. Up at that point, you had guys like maybe Hang Tan or Jansen or a few clothing companies that made some stuff that was surf related from the 60s, but it wasn't really that big of a deal. In the 70s, we had Quicksilver started, we had Rip Curl started, we had Billabong started. Um, these guys were all either former competitors or surfers themselves that realized they could make money off of surfing and surfing could make money for them. Mm -hmm. And that's where it started. And if you look at the real humble beginnings, those guys all basically started out of somebody's garage, whether it would be sewing a pair of board shorts or making a wetsuit or mm -hmm. surfboards had been the only really commercial hard goods up to that point because there have been surfboard manufacturers going back to the early 60s. But the surfboard manufacturers didn't have enough profit margin and they couldn't sell beyond a surfer. All of a sudden these surf companies marketed their image and the sport of surfing made it possible for them to market that image to the general public. And all of a sudden they began to make money in selling soft goods and accessories that were different than the hard goods of a surfboard. Because now you could sell it to the guy 20 miles inland, bought a t-shirt that said surf something on it and you could make money off of that. And if you can promote that image of the sport of surfing, because the lifestyle was already there, right? but now it's taking the sport of surfing. So it behooved these companies to put their money into it. So they actually built their own business. So all of a sudden you realized, well, Rip Curl's gonna sponsor the Bells Beach Pro. Quicksilver's gonna sponsor the Gold Coast Pro. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whoever else it is was going to sponsor in, in their area. And most of them were, were driven by surf-related companies. There was other, there was like Smirnoff was still around. There was mm -hmm. uh, Coca-Cola got involved here and there. Stubbies was, was a clothing company in Australia that used the image and the sport of surfing to build an entire brand around mm -hmm. surfing. 
And so these guys put money back into the sport, built the, the industry because it behooved them to make it bigger because it made their market share bigger. And all of a sudden by putting money into surfing, they built their market and it, it was to their own self-interest. Right. And that kept going from the 70s through the 80s, through the 90s, and there was the boom period of the 80s, it exploded. Surfing became fashionable everywhere and combine that with skate, you mix the two lifestyles, skate and surf, and it became huge mm -hmm. worldwide. And so that, what used to be just fringe coastal areas across the nation, across whole countries, I mean, People like in Germany embrace surfing. And uh, and then there's all the offshoot things that came with it. Windsurfing got really popular, which helped spread the concept of it. And, and everybody capitalized on it. And so that fueled the growth of professional surfing to the point where it got so big about 10 years ago that the surf companies realized they couldn't sustain it. And so they had to go beyond outside of the sport. Mm -hmm. And with that, the interest is how do you expand that image what better way than the Olympics so a handful of people began to use the idea of putting surfing in the Olympics to expand the sport it wasn't because they love surfing it was because they wanted to build the market sure that's purely the reason why so it's been a 20-year yes, plan that is finally coming to fruition and ironically the WSL is using that to further their goals of building the sport of surfing by using the Olympics to promote the sport. Right, and like, you know, the Olympics does allow uh, professional athletes to compete. No, it does, you for know. sure. Yeah, so it's an open door for the WSL to have the top guys right. compete. But, but how do you envision, like, there's so many guys that uh, don't get a chance because you have to be in the circuit to begin with. And breaking that barrier, the wall that's been created for you to even have a hope of becoming part of that echelon, how do you think that's going to fare out with all those great surfers that never see the light of day? I think the first one, which will be 2020 in Japan, will be basically to demonstrate what the sport is. There's only going to be representatives of 20 men and 20 women. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, there's over 100 countries that you can surf now. That's right. So, but you couldn't, it's not like, because you need waves to begin with, it's not like a track or a field or a, like any of the bat ball and stick sports allow you to, to market and promote it and control it. Well, right. surfing, the only way they can do that is to create wave pools. I mean, the ideal, when they first announced it, they said that we're going to be in the ocean and the competition will be held in the ocean. Well, that's all fine and dandy, but what if there's no surf? Right. Then the, the introduction of the sport would be a total flop. So the obvious answer to that is develop wave pools, and that's where they're going to go with it. Well, if you can develop wave pools for the Olympics, then they're good enough for the average Joe to do it. And so the technology's there, if the cost factor's there, they'll expand wave pools surfing around the world. Mm -hmm. They already have wave pools in Dubai, and mm -hmm. there's been Japan, and there's the US, and Australia, there's one. But it's the, the technology hasn't been that great until now that they finally, the question is, can they get the critical mass to make it cost effective? And that's, yes. that's gonna be the big question that, will, will the Olympics save surfing? I think that's a question that the WSL wants to know. Yeah. in which they're hoping that, that the answer is a, a affirmative yes. Do you think that'll happen? I, 
to have an international outreach that grips every country and the populace that say, I want to be a part of that? I think it's going to expose surfing to such an extent that surfing will become even more popular than it is today. Mm-hmm. Whether it'll, it'll launch a renaissance in surfing, I question that. But I think the essence of the sport will become well known to the masses and it will just encourage that many more people to surf, which is why it's a double-edged sword. Because sure. unless they can build a wave pool in everybody's town, hometown, that's a lot of surfers to ride a lot of waves that are not necessarily there. It's crowded as it is now, so you can imagine what it'll be like. Yeah. So that's the downside of it is we're, we're dealing with a uncontrollable factor and unless they can really improve the technology and bring the cost down for wave pools it'll be uh, it'll limit the growth of the sport because of that reason because the average guy in Kansas even though he might want to become a surfer unless he moves to the coast he's not gonna be able to do it no absolutely yeah, yeah. so so wow heady stuff yeah. but going back to the beginning of our chat and the theme of our podcast Aloha what does Aloha mean to you, and how do you see Aloha coexisting with this big, expansive future of surfing? Well, I think if you look at the history of surfing, it dates back, well, they don't know for sure, but potentially thousands of years ago, the ancient Polynesians, whether it be Tahiti or Hawaii or what have you. Um, I think our best ambassador to the sport, Duke Hanamoku, was an Olympian himself granted a swimmer and he said he had hoped to see surfing in the Olympics a hundred years later which basically it, he didn't think it was going to take a hundred years I don't think but uh, he had wished that surfing could be represented because he felt that Olympic spirit was what spread the interest in surfing itself but I think you have to look at Duke himself and his spirit of aloha and what his projection of the way people take not only the sport of surfing but also the lifestyle of surfing and how that lifestyle can be projected back. And if you can adopt Aloha and give Aloha, you will get Aloha. And to me, that's really important. One of the messages that surfing does spread. It's a a universal sport, as we said in the beginning, when I traveled around the world back in the 70s. It was the one thing that was the equalizer, no matter who you are, where you were from, what language, what ethnicity you were. Once you were in the water riding those waves, you were the same as the other guy. Nobody was any better. Everybody's the same because you're riding the one medium that we all share together. So in doing that, if you can project that idea, which is really described as a spirit of aloha, you will get back many times over what you put out. and. I think if everybody out there listening paddles out and, and takes that into the water with them and then takes it back onto the land, the spirit of Aloha will, will live well and we will all live better for it. Well said, Randy. Seriously. And thank you so much for sharing your life story with us. Oh. And hopefully you'll inspire, because I know you will, inspire many others to do what you've done, maybe in a smaller scale, uh, but uh, to experience uh, newfound uh, locations that you've never been to before, especially pack a board and then blend with nature. Well, I think, as I said, that first ride when I was 10 years old, how enthralling it was to be a surfer, has carried with me my entire life. I mean, it's it's almost 70 years, 60 years that I've been surfing, and it's uh, 
it's an amazing lifestyle it's an amazing sport and it's given me everything of joy in my life and mm-hmm. as i said i've tried to project that spirit of aloha that everybody else that i've encountered seems to appreciate it that's for sure, for and, sure. and if they can adopt that in their thinking then it'll be a, a good world that we could all live in and hopefully not too crowded in the lineup <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I love it. Uh, mahalo to you and aloha to you, Randy. Aloha Thank to you, you guys. So much. Thanks. Aloha. For-